you and I are going to overcome idolatry in our hearts, then ultimately we must find our joy, our delight in God. That's what your heart's crying out for. That's why you're worshiping that idol. You're looking for something that can never be found outside of God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his series with part eight of Tear Down Every Idol. Whether in its ancient or modern forms, idolatry is a pervasive and destructive force in the lives of both believers and non-believers. Revealed in outward actions, its root can be found in the heart. The question is, how do you overcome idolatry within your heart? Well, as you'll learn today, if you're going to overcome idolatry, then ultimately you must replace the satisfaction and devotion found in the idol with true and genuine delight, a joy that can only be found in God Himself. Put another way, every heart looks for something to worship, but nothing can substitute for what can only be found in God alone. Don't miss this warning and also the incredible encouragement from God's Word. Here is Tom Pennington now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. What do you have in your possession that promotes and encourages your idolatry, whatever form it takes? What do you have that promotes and encourages your idolatry? You need to get rid of it. You need to get rid of your television or your internet connection because you're using it to satisfy the idol of sexual sin. Maybe there's a relationship that you're pursuing that has become more important to you than obeying Christ. Maybe there are, ladies, books at home that paint unrealistic porch pictures of marriage and have created an idol in your heart rather than loving and ministering to your husband You've created an idol. Throw them out. Maybe your problem is materialism and wealth. That has become your idol. Are you living in a house or driving a car that you know you really can't afford? That may be a sign that things have become an idol and you need to get rid of them. Or maybe you have great financial resources, but you look around your home and your garage and your closets and you see sinful extravagance. If it facilitates your idolatry, then it may need to go. Or maybe you need to determine to be especially generous as 1 Timothy 6 urges those who are rich in this world to be. If your idol is some substance, then get rid of your drug paraphernalia. Dump your stash of drugs and alcohol. You see, you and I must ask ourselves, what is it in our closets and in our cars and in our offices and in our homes that encourages and promotes our idolatry? And we must rip it from our lives. You say, well, I need my internet connection. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, get rid of it. It's a lot less trouble to get something other than an internet connection. You get the point. Get rid of everything connected to your idolatry. Don't tolerate it in your life because it will only provide the opportunity. We're good at that, aren't we? We sort of leave ourselves and out. God, I'm repentant. I don't want to come back to this idol in my heart, but then... The thing that facilitates it sitting over on the shelf or in the closet or wherever. Get rid of everything connected to your idolatry. There's a second biblical response to idolatry that's related to the first but is distinct from it. 
Number two, avoid, avoid anything that draws you back to your idolatrous desire. Not only do you get rid of the stuff out of your life, but then you avoid anything from that time forward that would draw you back into that idolatrous desire. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in fact, turn there with me, Deuteronomy chapter 7, again, Moses on the plains of Moab telling Israel how to deal with the idolatry they're going to face. He says in verse 25, the graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it, you shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. Now before he dealt with the actual images themselves, those we are to smash. But there may be someone who says, look, we need to get rid of that idol. I understand people were worshiping that, but look at the gold and the precious metal on that idol. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that idol is nothing. I'm not going to worship that idol. I'm just going to take the silver and the gold. You know what God says? Even that could suck you into that idolatry. Stay away from it. Have nothing to do with it. The lesson here is that you and I are to abstain from all those things, to avoid all those things that could draw us into idolatry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul in the New Testament tells the Corinthians who came out of idolatry the same basic point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, he says, My beloved, flee, run from idolatry. And then he goes on to talk about the problem. Verse 20, or excuse me, uh, verse 19. What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? You see, here's what was happening. These people who were a part of that Corinthian culture had been saved out of that idolatry, and now they were tempted to rejoin their friends in going to the celebrations at the temple. They were saying to themselves, well, it's no problem. I know that idol's nothing. I know there's no God there. I worship and serve the true God. I'm just going to go back and have a party with my friends. And Paul says, don't even think about it. Don't even think about going back into that temple and enjoying that celebration. Run! from that which would draw you back into that idolatry. What does this look like for you? Well, it may mean that you need to stay away from some person who encourages you to satisfy your craving. You know, the kind of people in your office who say things like, why do you stay with her? Why do you put up with him? You have a right to be happy. Or, here, have another drink. Or, you deserve better. Or, hey, take a look at this. It might be a job that provides too much anonymity and too much opportunity to worship your idol. You may need to change jobs. You may even need to change careers. It might be certain circumstances you need to avoid. For all of us, there are certain times and certain circumstances when we're all most likely to sin. Do whatever you have to do to avoid those circumstances, to avoid anything that would draw you in. Ask yourself this basic question, who encourages me to pursue my idolatrous desire what encourages me to pursue my idolatrous desire and what circumstances encourage me
to pursue my idolatrous desire? And whatever the answers are, create a plan to run, to flee, to stay away from those things at all cost. A third biblical response to idolatry is don't associate with those who put other things before the Lord. Don't associate with those who put other things before the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses makes this warning very clear to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it, he clears away these seven nations that are greater and stronger than you. Verse 2, when he delivers them before you, you defeat them. You shall utterly destroy them. We're talking now not about the idols, but about the people in this case. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor you take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. You know what this passage is alluding to? This passage and dozens of others that I could take you to, they are describing the influence that idolaters have on the people of God. You see, God has established this world so that you have the power to influence others, and they in turn have the power to influence you. And we have to be constantly aware of the influence that others can bring into our lives. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul deals with this very issue of the influence, particularly when it's in the church, connected to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you remember the situation here is that the Corinthian church was tolerating someone who was living in incest. And in fact, according to verse 6, they were even boasting about it. That is, they were boasting perhaps about their tolerance, about their wide-heartedness to accept this person who had chosen a different lifestyle. And he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. It's a lot like our saying that one rotten apple spoils the barrel. You know, as I thought about that this week, I was interested in the fact that when we speak of the power of influence, we use fruit and rottenness, which frankly takes some time to set in and develop, doesn't it? When God speaks of the power of influence, he uses the image of yeast. Now, my wife has a wonderful tradition that she has brought from her family, and that is on an almost weekly basis, her mom would make this wonderful homemade potato bread. It sort of freaks my kids out when she talks about feeding the starter. But apart from that, they love this bread that she makes, and I do as well. Of course, the key ingredient is yeast. Now, I don't know if you know anything about this or not, but I didn't know much about it until this week. I decided to go to Fleischmann's website and learn what I could learn about yeast because this is a fascinating image. You see... The process to grow yeast is fascinating. My wife doesn't grow it. She, like you, if you make bread, buys it in those little packages, those little freeze-dried packages, and uses it and mixes it in with the dough. But the first step that the company uses to produce yeast is using a very strong microscope. They identify one yeast cell from the strain of yeast that they want to use. And once they've identified that one cell, they then plant it in a sterile test tube that contains all the nutrients necessary for yeast to grow. And in that tube, the yeast cell, that one yeast cell, reproduces by budding, by multiplying itself. 
And by the time the yeast is ready to be harvested, that one yeast cell that they started with will have grown into tons, literally tons of yeast. And when the yeast is added to the flour in my wife's kitchen, if you could see it under a microscope, it literally is exploding into all the cells around it. That is a picture of the power of influence. You have to ask yourself, what's the yeast in your life? Or who? Who are your best friends? Do they encourage your pursuit of God and Him alone? Or do they instead encourage your idolatry? Encourage the pursuit of your desires? Don't associate with those who put other things before the Lord and encourage you to do the same, both with their words and their example. Now, obviously, later here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says primarily when he's talking about associating, he's talking about joining up with, connecting to, having a deep friendship with. Obviously, you have to associate with people of the world who are idolaters. But we're to have no connection whatsoever with those who are in the church who are guilty of that. But the point is the power of influence, and we are to protect ourselves from that influence as in the church as a whole. Verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves, and individually we're to protect ourselves from those sinful influences. A fourth response to idolatry is pursue biblical sanctification. Pursue biblical sanctification. Back to Colossians chapter 3, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Colossians chapter 3, he mentions covetousness or these strong desires which are idolatry in the context of sanctification. He begins in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3 telling us who we have become in Christ. And he says, therefore, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Literally, put to death the members which are upon the earth. Now, he's not talking, again, about asceticism or some form of self-mutilation. You can't make rules to curb the cravings of your flesh. The flesh has no power to control the flesh. So how does it happen? How do we put to death these sinful tendencies? Well, if you were here, and I hope you were, if you weren't, I encourage you to go online or get the CDs, when we talked about sanctification, because there's nothing more important for you as a believer than that, understanding how sanctification works. It really comes down, according to Ephesians, to basically three basic steps. Put off the sinful tendencies that are a part of your life. Be renewed in your thinking by the power of the Spirit and the Word. And thirdly, to put on the positive virtues that should be in the place of those vices. We've talked about that at length. That's what we have to do. God is not going to zap us. We have to put to death our tendency to idolatry by putting off, by being renewed, and by putting on. We must expend the maximum effort to obey, and as we do, then God does what we can never do. He changes our hearts. He changes our desires. He changes our affections. So we fight idolatry then, according to this passage, by following the normal process of sanctification, that is, by putting it off, recognizing it, acknowledging it, confessing it, and seeking to put it off from our lives by allowing the Word of God and the Spirit of God to renew our thinking. That's what we're doing in our study of worship and idolatry. And then we put on the opposite of idolatry. But the question is, what do we put on? What is the opposite of idolatry? 
And that brings us to our final biblical response to idolatry. Number five, here it is. Find your pleasure and delight in God. Find your pleasure and delight in God. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter two. The prophet Jeremiah puts his finger on this very truth. In Jeremiah chapter two, in verses seven and eight, Jeremiah says, look, God brought you into the land, and soon after you got into the land, you began pursuing idolatry, particularly Baal worship. So therefore, verse 9, I will yet contend with you. And God uses the language of the courtroom. Literally, he says, I've got a court case against you. I have a suit against you. The Hebrew expression implies that very strong metaphor. Now, why? Well, in verses 10 through 12, He says, it's because you've done something that never happens. It's hard to believe. It's never been done before. Cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see. Send to Kedar and observe closely. In other words, reach out to the lands around us and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Now, in verse 13, he comes to the two evils that Israel has committed. For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, what's going on here? Well, the image behind this verse is of a drought-stricken country. You and I are in the middle of a drought in North Texas, but those who live in truly arid places in the world would laugh at us for thinking this is a drought. In a drought, like he's talking about, there's no rain, every piece of vegetation dies, the earth itself begins to crack on the surface, and there are even fissures in the ground because there's no water, there's no moisture. In that kind of environment, typically there are only two sources of water. There's either a freshwater fountain or there is collected rainwater. That's it. A freshwater fountain that bubbles up or that you dig down and get to the water level, the water table, or a collection of rainwater. Now, obviously, if you had a choice, which would you prefer? You'd prefer the fresh water, the fresh fountain. Imagine then, Jeremiah says, people living in a drought who abandon the fountain right on their own property, and instead, right next to that freshwater fountain, they dig a cistern, an underground container to collect rainwater. But the cistern they dig isn't even waterproof. It lets the precious, life-giving, life-sustaining water seep back into the ground wasted. Now, what's going on here? Jeremiah is making this basic point that when people abandon a single-minded devotion to God, it's because they have concluded that God alone cannot satisfy their needs. That's the only reason you abandon your fountain for a broken cistern that you dig. People conclude that what they need can only be obtained somewhere else. And Jeremiah is calling these people to realize what they have in God. In God, you don't have a broken cistern that won't hold any water. You have a living fountain of fresh water. Drink deeply and be satisfied. If you and I are going to overcome idolatry in our hearts, then ultimately we must find our joy, our delight in God. That's what your heart's crying out for. That's why you're worshiping that idol. You're looking for something that can never be found outside of God. Augustine 
It's the most influential figure in the history of the church next to the Apostle Paul. For the 30 years before his conversion, he was an idolater. In his case, he was absolutely enslaved to sexual sin. But listen to the work of grace in Augustine's heart as he describes it. He says, as I grew to manhood, I was inflamed with desire for a surfeit of hell's pleasures. I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. But then listen to how he describes his rescue. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Isn't that how all of our idols are? They're fruitless joys that we fear to lose. But he said, how sweet it was to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. How? You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. Augustine, how did you overcome the idolatry of sexual sin that controlled you, enslaved you your whole life? If he were here this morning, he would say, it's because I learned that in God is true delight. As the psalmist says in Psalm 16, in your right hand, at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. If you and I really believed that, if we really believed that God was the fountain from which all true joy and pleasure comes, we would never seek it elsewhere. The only way to permanently destroy our idols is to replace them with a love for and a delight in the true God. And specifically for us as New Testament Christians, that means to center our lives in Christ and his sacrifice. In fact, turn back with me as I finish my message this morning to Second, Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 30. There's a fascinating circumstance that happens in Old Testament Israel. Hezekiah, the righteous king Hezekiah, comes to power. And for the first time in a long time, he institutes the celebration of Passover. Second Chronicles 30, verse 13, they gather the people at Jerusalem. In verse 15, they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th of the second month. In fact, verse 23 says they decided after that to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread for another seven days. It was, according to verse 26, a time of great joy. Nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. The Levitical priests arose and blessed the people. Their voice was heard and their prayer came to this holy dwelling place to heaven. How did they respond? Verse 1 of chapter 31, Now when all this was finished... All Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the Asherim, pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin as well as Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his possession. You see the point here? As the people of God celebrated the reality at Passover, that by means of the death of an innocent substitute, God would provide for their sins, they were compelled to leave that place and go through the land and tear down every idol. And that's my prayer for us today, that as we celebrate Christ, our Passover, as we think about his death, may you and I be eager to tear down every idol of our heart and have no God but God. 
and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series titled Tear Down Every Idol. Tom will begin a brand new series on our next program, and we hope you can join us then. But Tom, would you share a final encouragement for today? I hope if you've been with us through the series Tear Down Every Idol, you understand how pervasive idolatry is in our culture and even the temptation in each of our hearts. And my prayer for myself and for you is that God would give us both the insight and wisdom to discern the idols of our hearts and then the courage and the resolve to tear them down and to worship the one true God who alone is worthy of our worship. I encourage you to do as I will do, and that is say, Lord, see if there be any way in me, as David prayed, that causes you pain, and then help me by your grace to root it out. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.